When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you for listening to this Billy Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go Billy Up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, for four seasons, the AAFC was a threat to the NFL. But a great man once said that no one can run a business losing money every year, no matter how many people are coming to your games. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I have no idea how long this show is. I'm through predicting. I'm just going to turn this thing on and just go. All right. I know I'm going to miss some stuff. I have a lot to say and very little time to say it. But this is the Behind the Mic podcast. Uh, Look, y'all know the open. NFL historians, lovers of sports history, welcome. This show is for you, not for the people that already know this stuff. I get it. Let's move on. This show is for those who don't know as much about NFL history. So we are here to enlighten, teach, and learn. Again, it is the Behind the Mic podcast presented by Billy of Sports. The Billy of Sports podcast network. BillyUpSports.com. You can find my show as well as not only all the other shows, but some great content creators, writers. Read them. Click on the on the stories. Check them out. And you can catch all of our shows on our home base podcast network of, well, not network, the home base uh, of Spreaker. If you've ever heard of it, that's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Spreaker. Okay. Check them out on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, as well as YouTube. My show's not on YouTube yet, all right? No video for me just yet. Um, had a couple hours delay in posting this show, and it is Wednesday. I normally return, well, return, record on Tuesday nights, but I wanted to finish reading the book. Um, very good book, The League That Didn't Exist. It was written by Gary Webster. That has been one of my main sources of information and we've been talking about the All-America Football Conference. It only lasted four years, 
but it was the first professional football league to last longer than two years. Um, it, it, the, the book, it just, it, it gives so many great details and some backstories on the players and the coaches and the owners and even the end season stories and the storylines. Another thing I like about it is how it goes into, well, really game by game, giving details of the wins and the losses and, you know, how many people actually showed up to the games because that's very, very important. When you're a new league, people have to come to the games, right? And I really had to gauge um, an average of, the, the, the seating capacity for each stadium that these places were playing in. I'm going to go back uh, eventually, and I want to look and see how many people were able to sit in Ebbets Field. I have no idea. Uh, how many people were able to go to Yankee Stadium in the 40s? I have no idea. Who, how many were able to sit down um, you know, in Soldier Field? From what I read, it was like 100,000. I mean, that's a lot of seats for a stadium that wasn't hosting a professional football team. Remember, the NFL's Bears were playing at Wrigley Field and the Chicago Cardinals, they were playing at Comiskey Park for the White Sox. You know, I mean, I, I, it made me think about that, but showing each and every game, you know, and, and every um, and, and the important plays, the big plays that were made. Um, but I started to break this up into four different shows, but I felt I could wrap it up into three. I uh, really was going to do it in two, but it was just too much information. And I know I'm going to miss something. I know I am, but I'm just going to do what I have and we're going to go with it. Not only did I want to give some interesting facts and stories behind, you know, the AAFC, um, you know, the NFL's early domination of football, uh, professional football, uh, them matching up against them being a startup league and them going past the two year mark of all the other leagues that started before it, I wanted to answer these questions, basically who, what, when, where, why, how, you know, those kind of questions. They call it the seven W's, even though you got an H in there. Who was responsible for the AFC, the AAFC and who was in it? What caused it to be and what caused it to fold? When did it exist and where did its pro teams play? And finally, how did the whole league play out? So let's go back, review, kick the music. The five previous pro leagues, you had three a AFLs, and then the last two, the USFL and the TAFL, that was the first United States Football League and Trans-America Football League. They never did even go past the planning stages. They didn't even sign a player or play a game. Uh, then, of course, you had Arch Ward. Arch Ward, the big-time newspaper columnist for the Chicago Tribune, decided he wanted to add to his resume of sports, um, let's just say, uh, great ideas in sports. You know, he's the orchestrator of the MLB All-Star Game, as well as what lasted from the 30s into 1976, the college football All-Stars playing against the previous year's NFL champion. He started the AAFC, okay? And he got some deep-pocketed owners to invest in this thing because a lot of these owners, they actually had more money than the owners of the NFL teams. But the NFL was establishment. And it was trying to be the monopoly. And it had the monopoly on professional football at the time. Um, and then things got nasty after, you know, you had uh, litigations and fighting over coaches and uh, coaching hires and, and players. The AAFC against, you know, they eventually went against their do not touch rule on college players with eligibility as well as NFL players that were under contract. You had NFL players that left the NFL and went over to the AAFC. And you had the, the minor league 
professional, <laughs> well, the minors, they were the minor pro leagues were trying to you know, slide it to a, or, or, or really get it to the point where nobody would want to get to or go and play and sign to play for the AAFC um, because they were taking up players that they wanted. <laughs> and uh, I'll throw this in here now. Um, that there's a couple games that were played, I think, around 48-49 or two exhibition games. I think it was actually in 49 in which those two teams played. Uh, I can't remember what they were. Two minor league teams played some exhibition games against two of the AAFC teams. And the combined scores were 127 to nothing. So, minors, sit down, be quiet. Go to the corner. Um, again, you know, you, you had early success with the All-America Football Conference signing both college and NFL players. And the problem, one of the problems was that the league turned out to be a little top-heavy. We highlighted the first year, the 1946. Of course, the Browns finished by winning it all. The worst team was one of the, the Miami Seahawks. The Miami Seahawks, Harvey Hester, who was the owner, he didn't have as deep of pockets as his other owners. And the guy went broke. He actually went bankrupt trying to keep up. And it and it was only one year. And it was it was whack. And his team uh just was terrible. And that's all he wrote for Harvey Hester. Took 40 years for Miami to get a pro uh, pro football team again. Um, but as far as it being top heavy, that wasn't the only problem the AAFC had by the end of the year during the season. You had four head coaches that didn't even make it through the change uh as well as as changes in ownership, teams that certainly didn't like their head coaches as well as owners and head coaches not getting along. I mean, tell me something that's new under the sun. That's not one of them. Um, even a team who had players that didn't even get paid a majority of the season. See the Miami Seahawks and their owner again, Harvey Hester, who actually, like I said, he lost his life savings, come to find out, investing in that team. They won three games and they were dropped after that one year. Ouch. So the first season would end with the Cleveland Browns beating the New York Yankees in the championship game. Then comes the offseason. We ended the show last week telling you that the current commissioner, Jim Crawley, has stepped down in order to become a part owner and head coach of the Chicago Rockets. Now, the replacement for Jim Crawley ended up being four-star admiral in the Navy, Jonas Ingram. He was retiring from the Navy, and he also had played for Navy back in 1905 and 1906. And he was also the Academy's first All-American before, before becoming its head coach in 1915, and he coached them for two years. He was offered a five-year contract, which he said, nah, I'm good. I just want a one-year contract. And they paid him $30,000 for that one year, all right? So he's in for one year at least. He wanted to feel things out and basically be able to walk away if things didn't work out. So, I got my papers ready. You already know. So, just giving like a short review of what happened in the 47 and 48 seasons. Before we go into 1949, in 1947, uh, you know, the 46 offseason, let's just call it. You know, because everything ended in December of 1946. You're heading into January of 1947. Business has to be conducted. Now, Chicago was supposed to be the the big, big, the, the, the big time team. You know, that was because Arch Ward, he was from Chicago. John Keishan, the owner of the Chicago Rockets, um, he spent 
all this time trying to find a really good head coach and just they really could never pull it together. Crawley, back in September of the 46th season, two games in, remember Dick Hanley was the head coach and either he was fired or he quit. Either way you slice it, he was looking for money even after the AAFC went away. Crowley was asked by Keishan to take the coaching job. He said, I'm good. I'm good. So he, like most other pro football teams, they're going to go to the highest level, which was at the time college football. There was Minnesota's Bernie Bierman. You don't know who he was. He was the head coach for the Golden Gophers. He won like six conference titles and five national titles, at least to his credit. Then, he, of course, it was Notre Dame's Frank Leahy. And he ended up being a four-time national championship head coach for Notre Dame. He was hot at the time. I think they had already won like two or three of them. And they were trying to get him early. But they all declined. Then there was the Bears. Chicago Bears quarterback Sid Lugman. He, Keishan wanted to get Sid Lugman to coach his team. So it's like, okay, you're near the end of your career. How about, you know, you come coach these Chicago Rockets, you know, for me. You know, you could do this. And you could talk to George Hallis and say, hey, can you let me out of my the last, what, year or two of my contract, that last back half of my contract? Of course, that fell through. Didn't happen. Um, December 30th, Crowley announced that he was stepping down to become part owner and head coach of the Rockets. All right, so the coach was in place for the 47th season. Then there was the Baltimore Colts. The Baltimore franchise was supposed to start with everybody else back in 1946, but they had to back out early. I think it was because of monetary issues. So they were replaced by the Miami Seahawks, who were trash. And so when it ended up happening, when Baltimore was ready to go ahead and proceed in 47, they ended up with all of the Seahawks players' rights, plus players from the other seven teams. So they built a nice little team, at least for a year. Um, but then there was the problems that were starting to rise up. Now, the 47th season is described from the studying that I've done as the zenith, second year, the zenith or the high point of the crescendo of the All-America Football Conference. This was the best year that they would enjoy as a league. I don't understand why, but problems were starting to creep in already. Now, Here's the thing. Cleveland had outdrawn everybody. They had the biggest stadium in pro football. They had, what, 82,000 seats in Municipal Stadium? They were drawing about 57,000 per game, which was unheard of in the, you know, in, at that day in pro football. Well, you would think having a gate that big, and I think I talked about it last week, where they drew, you know, what, 400,000 fans. That's including the exhibition games. You know how much their profit was? Their take-home profit was? $5,739. That's it. That's all Mickey McBride got. That, that, I mean, that's all that they, they, the only profit that they made out of all of the money that they spent in having a championship-level team, $5,700. That's it. That's it. You know, um, and to go with that, now if Cleveland is having issues with that, then some of the other teams are too. You know that. Um, and, and it's true. They were starting to lose money. Owners were starting to lose a little bit of money. Now, it wasn't hurting them yet. Remember that these, these owners were deep-pocketed guys. Now, Hester was gone. He was replaced by another ownership group, um, and they were in Baltimore now. Where Okay? So, what was the other problem? 
Well, they were still fighting for pro, uh, for players. There was a problem. Actually, it would turn out to be for the, not just the All-America Conference, but also the National League, the NFL, the National Football League, and the AAFC. They were having to get the best players. And the players had the upper hand at this point. They had a choice. It's like, ah, there's not one league of professional football. There's two now. And they're fighting over me. I'm a Heisman Trophy winner. I finished high in the Heisman. So, hmm. I don't think I'm going to play pro football. I think I'm going to go work in a factory or start my, you know, cleaning business or whatever. Hey, how $25,000 for two, three years sound? Oh, I guess I'll go play pro football. This is the thing that the, um, that the, the pro owners were having to deal with. But here's the point. And the point will be brought out even more. Arch Ward, come to find out, part of his goal was to basically get these owners in professional football, period, to stop paying these players peanuts. Remember that these guys weren't even wearing face masks yet. They were getting beat up and trashed, and they weren't getting paid very much. And and I almost, I can't quote it, but Ward said that, look, these young men are spending the first five to seven best athletic years of their life playing this game, and they're not even getting paid for it. And there towards the end of it, it, I mean, you can attest to that now. Yes, they get paid big money, but they get it right here at the front end where later in life, you know, they're able to take care of themselves a little bit better. But physically, they are done, 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 done. You wonder why running backs like Robert Smith retire after eight seasons because they don't want to hurt anymore. I don't want to hurt anymore. I know I got paid a lot of money. I don't want to hurt anymore. But um, um, as far as the bidding system is concerned, give you an example there's two i can call out right now one chose the a uh, the nfl the other the aafc charlie trippy i believe he was a pro football hall of famer i can't remember but i don't even know if i'm saying his last name right that's what i've always said ever since i was a kid charlie trippy was a pretty good halfback out of the university of georgia and he ended up signing with the chicago cardinals now dan topping who was the owner of the uh the new york yankees offered trippy a lot of money to not only play football but also the opportunity to play baseball you have the opportunity to do both charlie you can play in yankee stadium twice with the pigskin and their ball was yellow by the way for the like what the first three years they had a yellow football not the not the brown pigskin we're used to um but you could play with with the football and you can play baseball well the Bidwells go all long way back. They have owned the Cardinals forever. And uh, Bidwell back then, he threw pretty much the same. He didn't have the same um, offer. It was just football. But Trippy took the Bidwell money, which was, I think, about the same. Um, but either way, it was a high price. And he signed with the Chicago Cardinals. Buddy Young finished fifth in Heisman voting. When he was playing for the University of Illinois, he ended up signing with the Yankees. And again, there was a bidding uh, for him as well. And so the bidding raises the price. 55, 75, 75, 75 85, you know what I'm saying? And, and and it's like, you know, you're holding your paddle up and they're going to sign with the highest bidder most of the time. That's what they were going to do. Um, and then there's the other little storylines in 47, say like the L.A. Dons. Their head coach, Dudley DeGroote, 
actually was a cha- a two-time championship coach and three opportunities with the Washington football team. He won two titles with the Red uh, with the Washington football team um, and lost one in 1945, ironically, to the team that played right next door to him with the LA Rams. That was the last, the first and only championship. We've talked about it before that the Rams had won to that point. And their first winning season, by the way, um, in 1945. Well, I mean, he and the GM, his name was Ed Madison. They didn't, I mean, excuse me, Madigan, they did not get along very well. And he would resign to Grootwood by season's end. Coaching changes. Just keep that in mind. Coaching changes. Now, one of the big pluses why this was the zenith of the AAFC is because attendance increased by 20%. More people were going to these games. More and more people were going to these games. Now, as far as the season was concerned, and you know, in the West, you had the, the Cleveland Browns, the 49ers, and the, the LA Dons, and the Chicago Rockets. And in the East, you had the New York Yankees, and the Bills, and then the Brooklyn Dodgers, and the Baltimore Colts. Now, the Colts were trash their first year. Let's just get that out of the way. They were 2-11-1, right? But the funny part was, they were worse, one game worse, than the Miami Seahawks were the year before. At least the Seahawks won three games, you know? The Brooklyn Dodgers, they were trash. They were 3-10-1. The Bills were a respectable 8-4-2. The Yankees, again, 11-2-1, would go back to the uh, championship game, and they would play, of course, the Cleveland Browns, who were 12-1-1. The 49ers finished second in the West at 8-4-2. The Dons won their back-to-back 7-7 seasons, and the Rockets, upon their former commissioner, Jim Crawley, and with the you know the new partial owner and and the new ownership, let's be great. They had ten straight losses in one time. They lost ten straight games, and they finished one at thirteen. And of course, Jim Crawley was out after that, and so was the ownership group. So they were going into 1948. They were going to have another coach. Now I'll just go on to get this out of the way. They had I think I read at least eight. They had about eight people that were head coaches whether they were interim or the actual head coaches in their four-year history that's too many they were going to their third ownership going into 1948 that's ridiculous and the browns they will go ahead and win against the yankees again the cleveland browns would win 14 to 3 against the new york yankees for their second championship in a row um but they, like i said the zenith yeah, I guess 1947 was the zenith, but and things were looking good for the AAFC. But as author uh, Stan Grosshandler put it, the handwriting would be on the wall in 1948, <laughs> and the new league would not like what they saw coming. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Shopify presents cool sheets from aha to lying awake while you bake isn't cool. I suffered from the wrong kind of hot in bed, heat-induced insomnia. That was my aha moment, bed sheets that keep you cool. Then I thought, how do I even sell bed sheets? 
that's when I had the idea that made it all possible. Signing up on Shopify. With the help of Shopify's intuitive online store creator, I started selling sustainable bamboo sheets that keep cool year round. And my cool idea became a reality. Hot sleepers around the world rejoice. Shopify makes it simple to keep your cool while starting and growing your business. Start selling with Shopify today and join the commerce platform powering millions of businesses worldwide. From aha to anything is possible. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Start selling online today. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free 22. Shopify.com slash free 22. So, for some, change is definitely good. Change can be really good. You know, changing jobs, you know, changing, you know, moving, you know, a change of scenery, getting a new house, a new apartment. And I'm hoping that you all out there are changing your draws. That, that's always a good thing. You can't wear a pair of draws two days in a row. I hope you know that. But change isn't always good. Too much change isn't. How about that? And I think I've said this before. But there must be some continuity of some kind, all right? At some point, just think about teams these days. The teams these days, you know, when you see ownership constantly changing, head coaches constantly changing, starting quarterbacks constantly changing, what does that normally mean for any football team or even you know, changes in, in head coach or ownership in any professional sport. I mean, the NHL, they change coaches like, I mean, you lose two games and they fire you. <laughs> you don't make it, not, not even a quarter of the season, not even the first month of the season if you lose too many games if you're a coach in the NHL. <laughs> but what does that normally mean? You stink. You probably stink. All right? So a lot of changes in 1948. Okay, let's go back to the Chicago Rockets. So the ownership group that was supposedly worth $33 million, that was the new ownership group that came in in 1947. They had zero dollars. Dolph has $0. No real cash. They didn't have any real cash. So to keep the team from folding up, right, three of those deep-pocketed owners from the three best teams in the AAFC, that would be Nicky McBride of Cleveland, Dan Topping of New York, and Tony and Vic Morabito of San Francisco. They gave the Rockets a total of $100,000, you know, to go towards them going into the next season so they would not fold. That's $33,333 a piece in order for Chicago to meet their payroll and finish the season. They failed. You know, they, they failed. Um, but this is a team that was supposed to be the crown jewel of the league because it was a Chicago idea and they wanted the Chicago Rockets to be one of the best of the best of the best. Yeah, but that didn't happen. And again, for the third straight year, the Rockets would have another ownership group. Speaking of which, kick it. You know who Branch Rickey is, right? Yeah, Branch Rickey, the same guy that is the you know was the, the the baseball executive right supreme the one who gave jackie robinson his shot matter of fact it was the same year 1947 that jackie robinson made his debut with the brooklyn dodgers um and he in the year before is when he when rich ricky broke pretty much 
to make that first step to break the color barrier and help break the color barrier. And the ownership of Bill Cox and then uh, I think it was Gerald Smith, who was like the GM or whatnot. I think it was Cox, Bill Cox and Gerald Smith that, that were both the Brooklyn Dodgers ownership. Look, they sold they sold their shares, you know, whatnot. Brent Ricky pretty much took over the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he had some ideas, um, and one of which was, wow, it's just crazy to think about that uh, they were even going to try, and they did try it to some degree. But again, there was the issue of some money. But 48, that handwriting that was on the wall was not only the money, but it was also players, all right? So you had three franchises, you know, even going back to the Seahawks, Chicago franchise and the Dodgers franchise, they weren't the only ones, but they lost some serious money um, going into 1948. But not only were they doing that, they were losing players. In 46 and 47, part of the reason that the AAFC had been successful was because they were signing some of the best college stars. Got to put talent on the field, right? Got to have somebody that you know. And someone who's actually good, that's going to make your team good, that's going to perform. And they weren't getting the top college prospects in 1948. Most of them were signing with the NFL then. They didn't get as many. I'm not saying they lost all of them, but they were not getting as many. Um, but to fix one of these problems, you know, as far as, and it didn't have as much to do with the players as it did as with the schedule and trying to get the money up and try to have a little bit more excitement going branch ricky actually threw at uh at, i guess at the ownership meetings he's like look i got an idea how about a baseball type schedule for football the guy wanted to play 29 games per team 29 games he wanted to prove that a baseball player and a football player were not that much different he wanted to play uh the twice a week and I think he may have even wanted to play three times a week I think I read in one portion um, in, of the book but he wanted to play 29 games they didn't go that far but you had some teams that were playing three games in eight days can you imagine you know that happening on a regular basis now I mean they whining about having to play on Sunday and turn around and play on Thursday well imagine playing on Sunday then playing on Thursday and then playing Sunday again Cleveland Browns did just that. They did exactly that kind of thing. And their 48 schedule included, and it was towards the end, and it was trying to appease Paul Brown. Because Paul Brown did not want to make two West Coast flights. He didn't want to make two trips out to the West Coast. You had the LA Dons, and you had the San Francisco 49ers, which were in their division. They had to play them. All right, so it was a home and away games. And you had to go out there twice a season. Somebody had to, and you're in their division. You had to get on that play. Well, they played at the New York Yankees, turn around, and then they played. And it was easy doing it that way. They played L.A., and then they played at San Francisco. Then they turned around. But still eight days, three games in eight days, playing football. That's difficult. That's difficult. And staying on the Browns, what was another problem for the AAFC? It was probably the balance. I mean, it's, it was glaring. Not only were the Browns the best team in the league, but it was also the New York Yankees, thanks to Dan Topping, who got to pillage every roster in order for him to come over to the AAFC. That's, that's the reason why the Yankees were good. The Yankees were good because he was able to say to the other owners, hey, look, 
you need New York media market. You need to be here, right? So this is going to help y'all being in this market, even though there's another team here, you know, with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And then, of course, you have the New York Giants here as well. But you need this media market. And this is how you're going to be able to get it. You're going to have to give me some better players because Topping at the time was his team was there um, in New York, but they had to play in Boston because the Maras, Tim Mara in, uh, in particular, the owner for the Giants, did not want uh, Topping's football team to play in Topping's own home football stadium of the Yankees. How he pulled that off, I don't know. Uh, it's my stadium. Why can't I play my football team here? But he owned the NFL territorial rights, and he was not going to lift them for Topping. So long story short, Topping made his exit, said, okay, I can play in my home stadium if I go to this other pro league. He did that, but he lost his team. He lost his players. Most of those team, those players ended up going to the Boston franchise, which they were called the Boston Yanks. Uh, eventually, in what, 49, they would move from Boston to New York. And I think they played at Ebbets Field. But anyway, he was able to pillage off of every roster. Topping his his thing was okay i get to pick up pick up pick players from off of every team all the other seven teams you can protect three players and that's it and i can pick players from all of your teams to my liking that's how he built the yankees well then there was going to be yankees two point uh topping 2.0 or yankees 2.0 like i said they were top heavy there was not a lot of balance and jonas ingram who was the new commissioner he said, we're going to institute this share the wealth initiative, okay? And that share the wealth initiative was going to call for the best teams of the AAFC to give uh, <laughs> to give some of their better players to, you know, some, to some of the also-rans, to give them to some of the better teams in order for them to improve and have a little bit more balance. So that meant that Cleveland, New York, and San Francisco were having to give up some players. San Francisco never did. Morabito said, nah, not doing it. I'm not doing it. And he didn't have to do it. Brooklyn, Chicago, and Baltimore were the three worst franchises in the league. And those are the teams that were getting the players. Okay? So, New York lost two quality starters on their offensive line, including, let's just call him an all-pro, but he was really an all-AAFC offensive lineman. I think he was a tackle. His name was Dick Barwin. And then the other one, the other starter was Nate Johnson. They also lost two running backs. They were kind of towards the end of their career. Um, Eddie Prokop and Dewey Proctor, they were decent, but they didn't do a whole lot. But they lost them. They lost some depth. And then Coach Ray Flattery, he did not like that much. Look, we just had back-to-back -back appearances in the AAFC championship game. Yes, we lost to Cleveland, and we didn't lose by much, but we lost, you know, some players that helped get us there. So, but they had guys like, um, it wasn't Frank Sinkwich, and I'm learning some of these guys just as I'm telling them to you. Uh, but one of their best players, one of the best players in AAFC history was a halfback slash quarterback by the name of Speck Sanders. Speck Sanders, and again, you have to remember that the NFL does not recognize any records of any kind from the AAFC, the All-America Football Conference history. Speck Sanders was the first running back to run for over, rush for over 1,400 yards. He had like 1,431 yards. That's a lot. Uh, and for his career, he only played three seasons, ran for 2,900 yards. Almost 1,000 yards a season. And he was throwing the football. I mean, the guy was really great. So the Yankees still had him. 
And then they brought in, like I said, Buddy Young, who was the fifth in Heisman Trophy battling. So they had their backfield pretty sold up, but there still were some holes. There were still some holes. Um, but uh, like I said, Flaherty, yeah, he didn't like it, but you probably should low, lay low because Topping built your team in the first place. So, um, hey, that was not a lot of not not a lot you can say. Another one of those players that got moved around was a guy you might have heard of him, Y.A. Tittle, who was, you know, the quarterback for the New York Giants, you know, later on in his career. Well, he actually started off with the Cleveland Browns, and the Browns actually let him go off to the Baltimore Colts, and he had never suited up ever for the Browns. Tittle was supposed to take over for Otto Graham when Otto Graham was gone. Now, Otto Graham was only 26 years old, but... You know, remember these guys were starting their careers not at the tender age of 22, but they were starting more like the 25, 26, 27 years old. So they were a little bit older and longer in the tooth, uh, even though they were in their 20s. Um, yeah, they, they they start their careers a little bit later. So you know that that right there was really interesting. When you get down to the season though, the 1948 season, the Cleveland Browns. They were the highlight of the year because they ended up losing only one game all year. And that was an exhibition game. Regular season, they finished 14-0. They finished 15-0 after they won the championship. Um, once again, the 49ers, heartbreaking. They finished second in the Western Division at 12-2 to the Cleveland Browns. And they could not go to the championship game. Guess who ended up going to the championship game? The Eastern Division's Buffalo Bills. The New York Yankees fell way off. They dropped to a record of 6-8. and eight. The Dodgers still stunk. They only won two games. The Colts and the Bills actually were much improved. And, well, I mean, the Bills were a game, game um, short of what they won last, you know, the year before. They won eight games and dropped down to 7-7. Seven seven. But there was their first playoff game in AAFC history. And it was cut because... Both the Bills and the Colts finished with seven and seven records. The Colts had a 17 to seven lead and looked like they were going to, you know, who was going to be the sacrificial lamb to go get beat up by the Cleveland Browns in the championship game. The undefeated team who was trying to become actually the first professional football team to finish undefeated. Of course, they're not recognized by the NFL. They only recognize the Miami Dolphins. I totally understand. Well, the Bears of 1934, they were 13-0, lost to the Giants in the championship game, 13-1. The 42 Bears were 11-0, they lost to the Washington team in the championship. So, but who was going to be the sacrificial one lamb? Uh, well, the Colts. Um, this is just an interesting story I have to tell you about. The Colts led 17-7, all right? And the Bills had a really good quarterback by the name of George Raderman. And this was actually it just so happened, just like still like the AFC East, right? The first ever tuck rule <laughs> because Raderman, he was throwing a pass and apparently he got hit and they ruled it an incomplete pass instead of a fumble because the Colts had recovered. And instead, six plays later, Buffalo uh, ended up, you know, uh, take, taking a 21 to 14 lead and Y.A. Tittle, Threw a pick six as they were driving into the final minutes, uh, and they ended up winning the game. Uh, the Bills did 28 to 17. Well, the field judge, well, excuse me, the side judge by the name of Tommy Willen, 
Wow. <laughs> this, is the guy, this is the guy that made the call. And he even said, well, after the fact, um, even after he was bust out of there and snuck, you know, snuck out of the stadium some kind of way, uh, <laughs> um, he said he would still make the same call that, you know, he, think, he thought he made the correct call. Well, the fans did not. And they found the guy uh, on the field, because keep this in mind, back then, fans ran onto the field. They ran onto the field. There, there were cops there, yes. But they used to run onto the field at the end of games and celebrate with the, the players. And they were able to touch the players and hug on the players and stuff like that. And God knows what else. But Wheeling, somebody got a hold of that guy. And I think a couple people got a hold of him because they found him with a black swole eye and his, his referee clothes were tore up. And they had to, the cops had to get him to the dressing room quick, fast, and in a hurry. <laughs> a very quick... This dude, yeah, somebody, he caught the beats after that game. They beat him down after that game. And afterwards, um, the uh, ownership for the Colts, they say, look, I don't want this guy, uh, and I think it may have been another referee as well, but I don't want Wheeling. He's not refereeing another one of our games home or away. Don't want to see him. I think it held up too. Um, but going, going to, uh, as far as, the championship game, it was going to be between the Cleveland Browns and the Buffalo Bills. And it turned out that they tried to televise the game on NBC, but they could not find a sponsor. That was the problem. No sponsor. They, they wouldn't take the game. Um, 49 to 7. Yeah, that was the end. <laughs> 82,000 uh, turned out for the game at Municipal against the San Francisco 49ers uh, during that season. Well, the Cleveland Browns crowds were starting to dwindle. I think they were bored. This was another one of the problems, the telltale signs, the handwriting on the wall, that even your best team is not drawing anybody. You know how many people that 82,000 seat stadium uh, held for the championship game against the Bills? And maybe it was because it was the seven and seven Bills. I don't know. Only 22,981 for the title game. And it was it was it was not great. Now the the, the game between the uh, again um it was Otto Graham and Frankie Albert that ended up being co-MVPs that year, which would prove to be the final year that anybody was named MVP. I think the end of the 47th season, Otto Graham was the MVP of that. But outside of that, I mean, nobody nobody was showing up to these games. They weren't showing up. Wow, I'll give you a staggering number at the end of the show, though, that's going to blow your, not, your mind. Well, the 48 champs were the Philadelphia Eagles uh, of the NFL, and they played a very boring, uh, muddy game against the Chicago Cardinals, and they won the game 7 to nothing. Well, the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles at the time was Alex Thompson. Thompson was tired of losing money as well. He was one of those many owners because uh, the NFL was not immune. No, they were not immune to losing money. They were losing some money as well. So, I mean, after that season, I mean, it just was, it, it, it was clear that because they were having to, the, the, the attendance was falling off. And one of the reasons for that was after the war, okay, you have to understand after World War II was over with in 1945, I think there was, a shot to the arms like okay 
finally everybody's home and there's no war. Let's go have some fun. Let's enjoy some sports that lasted two years. 48, they start to fall off again. And remember this also, baseball and college football were still king. They were still king. They were still at the top. Even though, you know, the, the war was affecting college football just like it was affecting professional football because you had uh, kids that were in college that were going off to fight as well. Just like you had some pros that went off to fight, college kids did too. And remember, we talked about how their eligibility was remaining because they came back, what, two, three years after the war, and it's like, are you going to finish college or are you going to go turn pro? And that was part of the battle with the the, the professional leagues and, you know, the college, um, really AAFC, and the colleges because they wanted them to finish out their college eligibility and, you know, there you go. But remember, college football and and baseball was still king and people were probably flocking back more to that or maybe they never really floated away i don't know the history with that i just know what was going on with the nfl and that's the only thing i could give you right there but anyway when it comes down to it i have a question again with all of that if you have a championship team you've won three straight titles cleveland just beat up buffalo for the third straight title 49 to 7 you got a championship-level team. Wouldn't you come to see them? Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is. So they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. If 1948 was the handwriting on the wall, then 1948 was more like a punch to the face and it wasn't subtle. It, it just, it, you just got it all, you know, just no filter at all. And it's like, look, pow, you know, wake up. This is happening. This is bad. This is happening. Um, in 1949, um, let's just go start with the Chicago Rockets. They changed ownership again. And they changed head coaches again. And guess who they brought back? They brought back a coach from the New York Yankees, who was Ray Flaherty. Flaherty was fired um, after, what, 1948, I believe it was, and uh, that dismal season. He, I think he was excused halfway through the season. Again, a lot of changes, too many changes, you know, left and right you got changing of ownership. You have changing of coaches. They changing, like I said, change draws. Yeah, but they're changing coaches and stuff more than they did that. Um, but once again, Chicago's 
you know, they, they're, they're hurting for money. They're hurting for wins. Nobody's coming to their games anyway. Again, they had, and I remember I've told you how they chronicled how uh, Gary Webster in this book, the league that didn't exist, chronicled every game that was played, whether he, it was a little paragraph or a big paragraph. Um, he gave you some, some uh, a summary of some kind of what happened. And even with all of that, the score, he gave you how many people showed up to every game. And nobody was coming to the Chicago Rockets games. And they thought a name change would help, I guess. Uh, they changed from the Rockets to the Hornets. They, they brought in Ray Flatterty, who was the, the two-time champion, uh, AAFC championship coach of the Yankees. They say, hey, look, can, you, can we make some changes here? Um, yeah, it was going to be, there was changes all right. The Brooklyn Dodgers, as far as they're concerned, Brett, Branch Rickey said, I guess he has seen enough. And apparently, and he had money now. That's not, you know, mince words. He had money. They had lost as much as $319,000. That was a lot to lose back in that day. And it, there was losses reported all over the place. But the biggest problem, again, was the bidding war for players. What was the answer to it? Okay. What was, would be the answer to the bidding war between the NFL and the AAFC? It would be a common draft. Would all draft, you get a player, you get a player. I mean, if you draft them, you draft them. But you're giving these players choices. All along, the AAF, AAFC wanted to just simply coexist. I read of these owners that they were nice, big-hearted guys, and then the NFL owners were like, eh, nah. They were more like hardline businessmen. And because it was one professional football league, and you had baseball, they were competing with baseball and with college football, they did not want another league and understand why. Because, and truth be told, look, if they were smart, if they were smart, they would have merged. But they were too big-headed to merge. And I'll tell you why they were so big-headed even at the end of this thing. Um, which even, they just, they just hated the AAFC so much that they didn't even want to add another team that they could have. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but the All-America Conference, they had problems of their own. So it ended up that the Brooklyn Dodgers went away. They had to flush them down the toilet. Look, that's enough. Uh, and the reason was, you know, <laughs> look, they, they were losing money and nobody was coming to their games either. And again, you go back to players and a common draft, you know, you cut down on all this money and then you're able to pay some some players and maybe Brooklyn being one of the bad teams. Burt Bell, who was the commissioner of the NFL, he's the one who instituted a draft in the first place. So he was one of the bottom feeders in the 30s when he owned the Philadelphia Eagles. OK, of course, he wasn't owning them anymore. He had to get out of that in order to take the commissioner job. All right. From Elmer Layden. I think, what, 1945, 1946, he was the commissioner of the NFL. He knows about having a bad team. Why was that his idea? And we'll talk about that next week. Uh, yeah, a little, 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 little sneak peek. Why was he a bad, why was he, you know, wanting to do a draft? Because he was tired of being a bad team and not getting the best players. So, Bell, he knew clearly what the AAFC was going through. And the Brooklyn Dodgers, and the Chicago Rockets, even though they had started off having some really good players, they both had the same problem. 
um, they were the player salaries. Uh, you know, they wanted to lower the player salaries, and that meant no more bidding. But who didn't want to do it? You had two owners in the NFL along with Bell, Tim Mara of the Giants, and George Preston Marshall of Washington. This dude, for all the stuff that he did, he was just he was a problem, man. This guy was a problem. Um, but then there were some meetings. There were two different meetings. Number one meeting, and I think Mickey McBride, who's the owner, the, the principal owner, uh, the majority owner of the Cleveland Browns, um, these meetings were supposed to be peace talks. And I'm holding my fingers up. I wish I had YouTube. Peace talks. And, you know, their peace talks basically said, well, the NFL wants the Browns and the 49ers. They're the two best teams, clearly. And Baltimore. What? Baltimore? And here's the thing. Marshall didn't want anything to do with Baltimore. Because, like, look, you're 25 miles away, I think it is. And we, I don't need another team to compete with. Nah, I don't want that. Uh, George Preston Marshall wanted no part of it. And the, the agreement had to be unanimous. It was voted 9-1 to one in favor of, you know, not having. With 9 for having these teams and 1 for not. And Marshall wanted no part of it. Dan Topping, on the other hand, uh, well, you know, the Boston Yanks, uh, he was he was actually for dissolving his team and becoming the landlord for the Boston Yanks, which basically used to be his squad, and moving them down to New York, which they did. Ted Collins, who actually owned the Boston Yanks, he did move them down to New York. Um, and then there was a second meeting, by the way. So, they was like, okay, look, let's have a 14-team NFL with two divisions. And, yeah, you bring in the Browns, the 49ers, the Colts, and the Bills. You bring all of these four teams in. And then, of course, the Yankees, the Dodgers, and Chicago, they would fold. And the Dons would merge with the L.A. Rams out west. How about that? They was like, no. No. And it ended up, uh, they, they even proposed on the AAFC side. It's like, well, why don't we just go with a 16 league? Um, without Chicago or Brooklyn. And Morbido, who's the owner for the 49ers, is like, no, nah, we're not doing that. That's just not, that's not bright. You know, we're already, you know, hurting for money. And having just, a, having a 12-game schedule and a 16-league, that's not going to fly. So, Jonas Ingram, going back to him, the current, um, the current commissioner of the All-American Conference, he had said he was going to do one year. He signed on for a second in 1948. 49 would be his last. Why? Because he said, okay, if there's no peace between the AAFC and the NFL, I will resign. And there was none. January 21st, 1949, he stepped down. And his deputy commissioner, Oliver Owen Kessing, or O.O. Kessing, he was elevated. And his office of deputy commissioner was never filled. So he would do all those jobs, I guess. Um, and that was the same year that the minor league teams decided to get in on a little exhibition action and got and both games ended uh, with a combined score of 127 to nothing. Um, and again, Chicago, they changed ownership for the fourth straight year. And again, like I said, Ray Flattery was the coach and he changed the name to the Hornets. Did it help? Uh, you know what? It helped for a little while. I think they were four and one at one point during the regular season. Because like I said, Brooklyn and New York ended up merging. Baltimore, by the season's end, they, they just went backwards. They were terrible, and then they were they were decent and had a chance to go to the championship, then they went backwards. 
they finished the season one and 11. Again, they were down to seven teams. They ran with a seven-team season, and there was going to be a two-game playoff by the end of the season, which that's what happened. But uh, Baltimore, they ended up firing their head coach, Cecil Isbell, and he didn't find out until he read the paper. I mean, they were 0-4 at the time, and they let him go. <laughs> uh, and it's really important to know uh, when it came down to, ba to uh, Buffalo, uh, Red Dawson, he was also fired. Uh, they think, God, I don't know how to say this guy's last name. He's the owner for the of the Bills. He was the owner. Jim Brule, B-R-E-U-I-L. They were 1-4-1. After, I think it was game, they got beat by the 49ers. And Brule went, goes down to talk to Red Dawson and says, hey, look, I want your resignation. And they argue because Dawson's like, no, I'm not doing that. You know, we can hang in here. And I think he had played like his first game without the star quarterback. You know, like I said, his name was George Ratterman. Ratterman actually had signed with the NFL. Um, he signed with the he signed with the New York Yanks. But he wouldn't start the season with them until 1950. This is 1949. He actually went back to Notre Dame to complete some classes because he and the owner, Brule, they couldn't come to agreement on, uh, he was holding out. He wanted more money. And Brule was like, nah, we're not doing that right now. No. And Brule actually convinced, uh, convinced him, I think, after the first game, because he went to Notre Dame to talk to Raderman and he got him to come back to play. And it was kind of all, I don't want to say totally off or not, um, like I said, because at the end of the season, um, the Bills, they were 5-5-2 five, five and two, at least. They actually finished the season pretty strong because Dawson ended up being out and the owner, he elevated their offensive line coach. His name was Clem Crow. He elevated him to the um he elevated him to head coach he didn't want to he didn't want to i think it was i might be thinking about somebody else but anyway they finished the season 4-0-1 you know go figure go figure they ended up in the playoffs in the end and Ratterman, he actually it was the new york bulldogs that was the name of the team uh the yanks became the bulldogs in 1950 and he wouldn't play with them until the next year go ahead all right that's great um but just to give you, um, you know, as far as bidding wars, give you a couple more examples of what the AAFC was, um, the NFL and the AAFC was talking about. You know, there's two quarterbacks that were said to play. Um, they, they were going to play in 1949. You had a quarterback, um, Glenn Johnson, I think it was, from SMU, uh, and University of Nevada quarterback Stan Heath. Both guys were great in college, and they both ended up being busting the pros. Johnson was selected in the 11th round by the Philadelphia Eagles, but chose to play for the Yankees. He started zero games, was 12 or 36 with no touchdowns and five picks. But, you know, Johnson would have signed with the Eagles had they played him more. But, you know, he signed with the Yankees. We don't know how much it was. Um, and then there was the case of Stan Heath, who finished fifth in the Heisman in 48. Uh, and then he ended up going to the Packers. Is uh, And the Packers and the Yankees were after, after him, by the way. He chose Green Bay. He stunk. He completed 24% of his passes. He had one touchdown and 14 interceptions. Pathetic. Both of these guys played one year apiece. A total waste of money. And these are the things that they were trying to continue to avoid in pro football. 
they were trying to avoid having to pay these pay this money. And I understand what the problem was. I mean, you know, you, you're giving too much money to some of these guys, and it was whack, and it didn't make any sense. All right, so I'm going to take one final break. You know, this is a long show today. I told you I had a lot to say, and I said I had a very few, you know, very few time to say it. But, look, um, we're going to get the final decision, and we're going to wrap up the 49th season and I want to tell you exactly how all that stuff ended. Very, very interesting. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is. So they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. So, the 1949 season, all right, the Cleveland Browns, they would finish the season. They actually were sitting in second place for a little while um, because the 49ers, they ended the streak, uh, the undefeated streak by the Browns by beating the trash out of them. They, they were playing, they were playing in San Francisco, I think it was, and they beat them 56 to 28, I think it was. Um, I can't remember what the game was, but they beat them down pretty bad. And, uh, of course, the, you know, the Browns got them back in the worst way, um, not just uh, in the regular season, but also in the playoffs. But the Browns finished the season in 9-1-2. and two. San Francisco was 9-3, and three, and the Yankees were 8-4, and four, the Brooklyn, New York Yankees. Respectable, right? And the Buffalo Bills, they were 5-5-2. Five, five, and two. So, once that once that uh that part as far as the um the regular season ended uh and you go into the playoffs Cleveland beats Buffalo 31 to 21 San Francisco beats Brooklyn slash New York 17 to 7. this was on December 4th those playoff games took place now a couple of days later while the Browns and the 49ers were preparing to play, and what would prove to be the final AAFC championship on December 8th, there was yet another peace talk meeting between the NFL and the AAFC. It was also a secret meeting, actually. Uh, and the only ones involved, according to Webster, uh, were NFL Commissioner Burt Bell. Uh, then there was the Browns minority owner, Dan Sherby, and the New York Yankees team attorney, his name was Arthur Friedland. I don't know why they called it peace talks. It was never about peace. The NFL wanted to ignore the AAFC until it couldn't. And I guess I said the way that Webster had said it at one point, they thought that the, the, the other pro football league, the upstart, would just magically disappear. And it didn't. But, you know, why couldn't they ignore it? It was costing them owners money from both leagues. 
And so the game, the championship game was going to be played on the 11th of December, a couple of days before, and I quote, on December 9th, Bell announced that a merger agreement had been hammered out and the result would be a 13-team football league to be known in 1950 as the National American Football League. It would consist of the 10 existing teams in the NFL plus, of course, the Browns, the 49ers, and surprisingly, the Colts, the AAFC's weakest franchise. I still understand that, but it was more so about where they were at instead of who they were. The AAFC was officially dead, end quote. So what about everybody else? Well, Buffalo ended up merging with the Browns, and Bill's owner, Jim Rule, would purchase a piece of the Cleveland Club, which was going to be news to Mickey McBride, who wasn't in on, he was not even in on the meeting. Didn't know what was going to happen, all right? Uh, the New York Yankees ended up merging with the New York Bulldogs, and the Los Angeles Dons, they merged with the LA Rams. The Chicago Hornets, they would cease to exist. This really, really wasn't what the All-American Football Conference wanted, but what they had to do, and they were actually willing to accept those terms because of the money that they were moving. They wanted to merge with the NFL. That's what they wanted to do. Well, at the end of the season, Cleveland would win the final uh, championship, 21-7 against San Francisco. And, you know, as, as that season went out and it was all over, um, just to give you a quick note, that there was going to be an all-star game for charity that was proposed by a supposed uh, uh, big oil tycoon by the name of Glenn McCarthy. and He wanted in on the AAFC. Well, of course, now, no need for that. Um, as far as the orchestrator of the All-America Football Conference, Arch Ward, he actually, you know, he put the league together for a purpose, and he had left that league to the owners. And he was happy with the results, even in how it ended. Because what he wanted to do, his whole goal, was to get college athletes paid. Like I said, and I quote from Arch Ward, professional football, though, they were facing oblivion unless the two leagues got together because no business could be run at a loss year after year. He was telling the truth. I mean, he was telling the truth. Somebody was going to be gone. It's, it was going to be one or the other. They couldn't, they really couldn't coexist at the time because pro football was still growing on people. That was the problem. I mean, you know, go figure. Um, and as far as the last game, you know, the championship game wasn't actually the last game for the All-American Football Conference. The final game was actually that All-Star game, which they agreed to play, uh, 1950 All-Star game for charity, and it was played in Houston. On December 17th, Cleveland uh, versus the AAFC All-Star team. And if, you know, whoever the champion was, this was something that was put out there. If they didn't want to play, then they would have an All-Star team versus an All-Star team for the AAFC, you know, teams that was going to be made up of, uh, they probably would have done East versus West or whatever. But um, Cleveland lost that game 12-7. Uh, the All-Stars won it. But, I mean, ho-hum and it wasn't the biggest thing now the aftermath the buffalo bills they actually got the short end of the stick better than average fan attendance and they had money this is where the nfl looked petty they easily could have been the 14th team in the nfl at the time why didn't they let them in i mean i think it was just uh the pig-headedness 
You know, they just didn't want to do it. And even the NFL owners had said that, yeah, we need to have a 14th team, but they wouldn't let the Bills in. I still don't know why. Maybe it was because they were in New York. Maybe. But ultimately, the league said no, and again, a unanimous vote was needed. And the Rams' Dan Reeves was the first one to say no, and you had nine that said yes and four that said no. All right? But I hope the Buffalo fans kept their heads up because 10 years later, uh, the final incarnation of the AFL would bring in the present-day version of the Buffalo Bills in 1960. The Baltimore Colts, they stunk. And they only lasted a year, and they were out of business. They were hemorrhaging money anyway. Of course, that was... Uh, in 1950. Now, the first, I think it was the first Dallas Texans team. This is before Lamar Hunt's Dallas Texans team that he started in 1960 with the AFL. They ended up being terrible, and they ended up in Baltimore in 1953, and they became the new Baltimore Colts or the championship Baltimore Colts. They wore the white and the blue. Now, the, the AAFC Baltimore Colts wore green and white, just to give you a of a visual, okay? Then you had the New York Yankees. They merged with the NFL's New York Bulldogs, and they were gone by 1951. Now, quiet as kept, that team was made up mostly of the Yankees players from the AAFC, and they were the third best team in the league, right? Um, were coming out of there for the most part. Although, you know, they went to their first two title games overall, you know, the next team that I'm getting ready to mention was much better. The San Francisco 49ers were clearly the second best team in the AAFC. And it was unfortunately that they only made the one title game. Um, They didn't get there until they downgraded to seven teams and uh, they got in. The Browns were the only team that stood constantly in their way. And when they went to the NFL, they struggled a little bit. They they did. They were three and nine, I think, their first year. And, you know, it didn't get better until much later, Um, you know, Really, they didn't really get really, really good until, of course, Bill Walsh came, you know, like two, three years after he got there. You know, they're already in the Super Bowl by 1981. But anyway, this was 1979. Um, Of course, the Cleveland Browns not only won it all uh, four straight AAFC titles, you know, um, and they had a 52-4-3 record. They could, and they did, mow through the NFL as well. Paul Brown's teams went to six straight NFL championship games. And they won three more, including in their first year in 1950, their first year in the NFL. Oh, I have to throw this in there. So, Philadelphia Eagles, man, they won it in 1948, right? They have been a championship team, you know, that year. And a couple years later, they were still a pretty good team. And if um, the commissioner, the NFL commissioner, (laughs) Mr. Bell, uh, had been the owner of the Eagles, you know, back in the 30s. He clearly wanted to prove a point. And that would be to silence the AAFC's best team. Of course, there's Washington's owner, George Preston Marshall. He said that the NFL's worst team could beat the All-America Football Conference best team. Well, well, they had a chance, you know, themselves personally to see exactly how that would go. And it was time to pay the Piper. Guess who the Cleveland Browns had to play in week one of the 1950 season? Yes, the Eagles. The Browns beat the trash out of the Eagles 35-10, and it should have been 42-10 had it not been for their other touchdown nullified by a penalty, which Paul Brown went back, looked at the film, and said, yeah, that was bull crap. Yeah, there was nothing, you know, there was nothing to that call. (laughs) So 
Um, and one thing that the AAFC was starting to do way before the NFL, um, well, before the AFL of the 1960s, was to throw the football a lot more. Everybody knew that the NFL was a ground-and-pound league, three yards in a cloud of dust, right? Earl Greasy Neal, all right, the head coach of the Eagles, he wasn't impressed even when he was had a front-row seat to seeing his team get trashed and said that, well, a team that wins football games runs the football. They don't pass it. Well, you just watched your team get torched for 346 yards. Otto Graham, you know, he threw your eyeballs out. All right, you just keep running the ball, Earl. And I guess Paul Brown heard those comments because they ended up having a rematch and beat the Eagles again. <laughs> and all they did was run the ball. Otto Graham didn't throw one pass. That's how I know Paul Brown knew what he said. That's how I know. So how do you want it, man? You want us to run it? You want us to throw it? How you want it? Yeah. And, oh, and also they beat the Washington football team twice by a combined score of 65 to 35. That's for you, George Preston Marshall. So finally, to answer the question of why the All-American, uh, the All-America football conference folded, why did they fold? There are multiple reasons. Obviously, it was obviously, obviously money. It was money. Moolah. Moolero. Money. Money. All right. Benjamins. That's the reason why they folded. And like I said, there's a lot of different ways you can go ahead and put that out there and, and say this is what happened. Ownership uh, in both leagues were losing it at the gate. But it was more with them overpaying for the talent. Common draft would have fixed that. Another way that money played a factor was that there were no TV sets hardly in any houses anyway, but there was no television revenue. Apparently the NFL had signed a uh, contract in 49 for some for, for uh, some television spots. That wasn't like it ended up being in the 50s and going into the 60s. Um, but that there was no TV res revenue. That's the reason why the AFL was so big, because they had those television contracts. Television contracts not only give you the um, the eyeballs, you know, but they also give you that other money that help you to pay the bills. Okay, y'all didn't have that, and it's also to be noted that there were very few exhibition games that the All America teams play. They're missing out on more money at the gate. Finally. Yankees halfback that I told you about earlier, Buddy Young, he said that it was also mismanaging, meaning coaching. He says that outside of Paul Brown and the 49ers, Buck Shaw, they were the two best coaches in that league, and they were they could have coached in either league. There weren't too many other good head coaches. I don't know about, you know, as far as Ray Flaherty, was he one of those coaches that was actually pretty good, or was it because his team was good? I don't know. I mean, once he lost a lot of players, they dropped from 11 wins down to six. And even when they brought him back uh, in Chicago, he, you know, they, they did a little bit better. <laughs> I don't know. But they, they said it was mismanagement. Personally, I think it was a combination of ownership as well as coaching. Not enough quality people in place. Either way, the All-America Conference can say we had a good run. All right, that's it. References. Man, I've never went over an hour. I haven't gone over an hour in a long time. Oh, God. 
hope y'all enjoyed the show but thanks to profootballresearchers.org the coffin corner is an article written by stan gross handler and also the book by gary webster the league that didn't exist a history of the all-american football conference from 1946 to 1949 this has been the Behind the Mic podcast presented by Bill Hill Sports, the Bill Hill Sports podcast network, BillHillSports.com. Click on it, read the articles, listen to the shows, and you can hear those shows on our home, our home base, let's just call it that, of Spreaker. Also, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, as well as YouTube. Tell all your friends and family about this show, or you already know, I'll find your house. Out. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.